Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. This week, we finally arrived to the conclusion of our series about the murder of Lacey Peterson. Though it took four months for her remains, as well as the body of the baby that she'd been pregnant with at the time of her disappearance, to wash ashore, the investigation into what happened to pregnant Lacey Peterson was nowhere near being closed. In fact, some might say the opposite. They might say that instead, the case was only just reaching its fever pitch, the very height of its frenzy. And all eyes were on Scott Peterson. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. It was on April 13th, 2003, that baby Connor's body washed ashore at the rocky shore of the Point Isabel Park. One day later, and one mile away in a marshier area, what all that remained of Lacey Peterson's body was discovered by a family who had taken their dogs out for the morning. Due to the extensive decomposition and the length of time that the bodies had been exposed to the aquatic elements, it took five days before it was confirmed that the bodies were those of Lacey and baby Connor. It also took the length of those five days for police to finally, after months of surveillance, theorizing, and suspicion, to arrest Scott Peterson on charges of capital murder relating to the death of his wife and their unborn son. But before we get into the hoopla that that arrest was, let's discuss what was discovered during the autopsies. Both autopsies, that of Connor and Lacey, were performed by a Contra Costa County forensic pathologist, Dr. Brian Peterson, who, no worries, has no connection to Scott or the Peterson family. Just a bizarre stroke of irony in an already bizarre case. Now, again, Connor's body was discovered before Lacey's at around 4.45 p.m. on April 13th. Detective Grogan wasn't notified of the discovery until the next morning at 8 a.m. on April 14th. And then just hours later, at around 1 p.m., he received word that there had been another body found in the same vicinity. This time, one of what appeared to be an adult female. You've really got to imagine the type of eeriness that must have descended on the Modesto PD when they got that news. After so many months, the odds, truly, what the odds must have been that both sought-after bodies were discovered within a mile and in less than 24 hours of each other. Prior to the discovery, in the hope and in the event that either body would ever be discovered, Detective Grogan had developed a plan of action that would play out should the day ever come that the body or bodies were discovered. And on April 14th, he put that plan into place. After receiving notification, Grogan sent detectives Henry Hendy and Philip Owen to the site where the female body had been discovered. 
Sergeant Al Carter also joined them. Grogan's next step was to mobilize the team of agents from California's Department of Justice, as well as other MPD officers, out to San Diego in order to locate Scott, where he'd absconded to, and to begin round-the-clock surveillance. Meanwhile, Dr. Peterson was already conducting the autopsy on the baby, as the adult female body was being retrieved. It should be noted that, at the time, despite any instinctual feelings or hopes, no one in the know of the discoveries was actually 100% positive that the two bodies that had been discovered were, in fact, Connor or Lacey. It's here that we're going to delve into the nitty-gritty of what Dr. Peterson discovered during his autopsy of Connor and then Lacey. It's going to be detailed. It might be hard to stomach. So consider this your trigger warning, ye of queasy constitutions. For the sake of simplicity, I should note, I'm going to be referring to the autopsies and the bodies by their names because, again, There actually wouldn't be a positive identification made until April 18th, so for four and five days, all of the investigators still had to work under the assumption that these bodies were just a baby doe and a Jane doe. Dr. Peterson shared on the stand what all he knew as he was preparing to begin the autopsy on the discovered infant body. Quote, What we received was another decomposed body, and this was received as just that, a decomposed infant or fetus body. And that was about the information that I had. I knew that he had been found washed up on shore. For what it's worth, our typical thinking in those cases is to try to determine whether or not we're dealing with a baby that had been born or not. In other words, if we're dealing with a live birth that has subsequently been discarded, that's one set of issues. If we're dealing with a stillbirth that has been discarded, that's a different set of issues. The real crux of the matter for Peterson was that he had to figure out through the clues and the physical remains what all that they could share, whether or not the baby had been the product of a stillbirth or a live birth. As he went on to testify, quote, in this case, as in Lacey's case, The job was more difficult because this body had been subject to a large amount of post-mortem change. Maceration is a term for taking a body and putting it in water, oftentimes warm water, and the degradation that follows there. I'm going to be referring heavily to Dr. Peterson's testimony because as I read through the trial transcripts, I thought his patience in making sure that he laid out exactly His entire process in easily understood layman's terms was incredibly helpful in gaining a full picture of what exactly that coroner's office both received and dealt with when the bodies arrived at the morgue. One of the first things that he explained on the stand, which we'll see pop up again and again, is this concept of post-mortem changes. Dr. Peterson defined post-mortem changes as such, quote, We talk about changes in the early postmortem period, such as cooling of the body, stiffening of the muscles. That's rigor mortis. Settling of the blood. That's liver mortis. Once you get past that, there are other changes that take place. Processes such as decomposition, where the body is acted on by bacteria, by microorganisms. There can be feeding on the body by 
larger organisms. For a body deposited in the water, that can involve large animals like sharks, all the way down to bottom feeders like crustaceans, lobsters, crabs, what have you. So there are a number of different things going on. And in this case, there was a full range of that type of postmortem change, making the examination more difficult. As Dr. Peterson explained in regards to the baby doe that he was examining at the time, quote, things, the matters of decomposition, are a little bit different for a fetus in the uterus. The reason is that that environment is basically a sterile environment. To my eye, there was no evidence of animal feeding. There weren't parts missing, in other words, that there were in Lacey. Here was a body that had undergone substantial post-mortem degradation. And my job was to try to determine if this baby had ever been born, if it were a live birth or a stillbirth, and maybe come up with a cause of death. Quote, Connor was decomposing in general terms. He weighed 1,161 grams, approximately 2.5 pounds. A crown of head measurement could not be taken because the head was collapsing. Crown heel length was 48 centimeters, approximately 19 inches. Based on these measurements, Connor could have reached full term. The skin was quite soft, in keeping with maceration, an effect on tissue soaking in fluid. There was no vernix on the body. The bones in the skull were overriding, which happens as the brain liquefies. There was a tear near the right shoulder that exposed skeletal muscle and the structures beneath. The tear extended into the abdominal wall, and portions of the small and large intestines protruded through the tear. In Connor, for the most part, the organs were still inside the body, but they were remarkably liquefied. The weights were substantially different than they should have been. So the tissue had to go somewhere. So that's basically what happens. It liquefies. So even though the organ looks like it's there, a lot of the mass was missing. The other degradation-type processes that were observed was some sort of post-mortem tearing that involved the shoulder extending across the chest into the abdomen. Again, there was no evidence of feeding there, just tearing. Now, this body was very soft, and it came apart quite easily. So the thinking at the time and at this point was that that tearing could have been caused by the physical action of the body being thrown up on shore. The way that the tearing Connor looked was more that the tissue was soft enough to simply pull apart. In the case of this happening during life, there will be other changes in that soft tissue like bleeding. There was no bleeding in this case. So it was simply dead tissue that was pulling apart. There was a portion of umbilical cord. The measurement that I gave was half a centimeter, roughly a quarter inch. As received, one and one half loops of plastic tape were around the neck of the fetus with extension to a knot near the left shoulder. The skin was uninjured beneath this loop and the slack between the loops and the neck was roughly two centimeters. Connor's body was, relatively speaking, in much better shape with respect to most of the parts being there compared to Lacey's. Connor's body had undergone a similar type process with respect to autolysis, maceration, body soaking in fluid, and so forth. But 
there wasn't quite the evidence that it had been exposed so much to the other physical forces that we discussed, namely the tidal action in animal feeding. So there were some similarities, but again, to my eye, marked differences, particularly because Connor was so much smaller. And my thinking was that as small as he was and as softened as he was, that if he had spent substantial unprotected time in the water like Lacey did, he would have been eaten. There simply wouldn't have been anything left. My conclusion was that Connor had been protected, certainly protected, to a greater degree than Lacey was. From what we can deduce by all that Dr. Peterson shared on the stand, the coroner's office determined that Connor had remained in the uterus when Lacey's body was disposed of in the water. This I'll explain now as we examine what Lacey's autopsy was like, which took place the day after Connor's. Well, Dr. Peterson determined that Connor had been, to a degree, protected by his mother's body and specifically her uterus when they were both placed in the water. The same couldn't be said for Lacey and her body. To put it lightly, there were a lot of postmortem changes in Lacey's case. From Dr. Peterson's testimony, quote, there were a lot of parts missing. The head, the neck, the forearms, the left lower leg were all absent. Much of the soft tissue was absent. Much of the internal organs gangs were absent. So in terms of the standard autopsy sequence, it was abbreviated in many ways because there was actually so little there. In this case, the head was missing. The neck was missing. The forearms were missing. A lot of that material was simply gone. There was no brain to examine because the head was missing. That's a lot of missing body parts. A suspicious amount of body parts, some might say. Those crucially missing body parts presented a lot of obstacles that Dr. Peterson had to overcome as he proceeded with his examination, even as he theorized about just how those major body parts came to be missing. Quote, One of the challenges of this case is that part of the examination that was really external was also internal, because there were internal elements exposed that wouldn't normally be exposed. So as I was looking at the extremities, the arms and the leg, as I mentioned, the forearms were missing. The left lower leg was missing, but the joints were there. So I was able to look at those joints and determine that I cannot find any specific marks on the joints that I would call tool marks. So, for example, if a joint were taken apart with a knife or a saw or some other implement, that will oftentimes leave marks on the bone. There were no such marks. One possibility would be that tools were not used to remove the extremities from this body. And certainly, being in a marine environment and subject to animal feeding and tidal effect, as the body moves around based on the tides and so forth, by itself can remove extremities. The other possibility would be that tools were, in fact, used to remove the extremities, but was done in a careful enough way so as not to leave tool marks. It's not exactly easy to remove extremities and not leave marks. So when I see a case like this where there are no tool marks, 
my assumption would be that tools were not in fact used. Dr. Peterson then explained the second possibility that he had mentioned, how being in the water might have played a role in the removal of Lacey's extremities. Quote, when somebody is in the water and dead, however they get there, because of the center of gravity, the arms and legs are heavy and the body floats face down with the arms and legs hanging down. Initially, typically the body also sinks. So at this point, we have a body with arms and legs hanging down low in the water, meaning down as far as it can go. In other words, close to the bottom. At that point, due to tidal action, current, etc., that body is going to move along the bottom with the arms and legs hanging down, and those parts that are low are subject to being injured by stuff on the bottom. Rocks, debris, ship parts, whatever happens to be down there. So by a combination of decomposition and tidal action alone, even in the absence of animal activity, the parts that are hanging down can be lost, and the parts that do hang down would be just that. The forearms, the lower legs, the head, the neck, and so forth. Now, of course, the other possibility in a marine environment is that animal activity is involved as well. There can be large animal activity, as I said earlier, larger fish, sharks, etc., down to smaller animal activity. Just depends on what's there. But if, depending on where anchors might have been placed on a body, it could hold the body in one place for a while. Depending on how anchors were attached to the body, say, for example, they were attached to the arms and legs, once joints start falling apart because of the decomposition, the rest of the body would have exited, leaving the arms and legs and anchors there. It all depends. It's an interesting round of theories to consider. Had the missing extremities fallen victim to natural causes, ripped from Lacey's body as they grew more and more decomposed and became entangled in aquatic material? Had someone carefully and methodically removed them? If so, why? And if so, how? Had anchors been used to weigh the body down, and had those same anchors eventually torn the limbs from the body? Even Dr. Peterson, an expert in forensic pathology, even he couldn't say how Lacey came to lose so many of her limbs. Dr. Peterson did his best to examine what all was still left of Lacey, though. Quote, In terms of soft tissue, from the belly button on up, there was very little sort of tissue remaining, and the bones were exposed. So as the body was received, I could see the ribs. One portion of rib number nine on the right appeared frayed. The ribs, in terms of their ends on the left, were intact. There were fractures on left ribs five and six. I couldn't say if this represented injury that happened before death or after death, so I just called it frayed. I could see the shoulder blades. I could see the vertebral column, the spinal column. From the waist on down, there was still soft tissue in place. There were no heart and lungs to examine because the chest was empty. Inside the abdomen, there was no liver, spleen, kidneys, pancreas, or intestines. That was all missing. And in fact, 
the only organ remaining in the abdomen was the uterus. The state of Lacey's uterus may have been the most crucial clue that she had left to provide us with any sort of answers about what had happened, at the very least, to Connor. According to Dr. Peterson's testimony, quote, this uterus was markedly thin. The thickest, and I measured the wall of the uterus in several locations, the thickest was two millimeters, very small, all the way to nothing. Up near the top of the uterus, it actually had been to my eye, abraded and was open. So up there, there was no wall. In summary, what we had was a uterus that was much larger than a normal non-pregnant uterus. The wall was much thinner. And as I put those two things together, I determined that that had been a pregnant uterus. The lower portion of the uterus would involve the cervix and then the passages within the vagina. Those structures were closed. So a baby had not passed out in that direction. I was left with only the one other choice. And that was at the top of the uterus, the fundus was open. So I determined that the baby had exited through the top of the uterus. Once all was said and done, despite everything that we did, I established that the cause of death was undetermined. Now, I know, you're all probably screaming, how the fuck could a cause of death not be determined? Peterson explained, quote, the job of a forensic pathologist is to try to determine if we can, if a baby is stillborn or liveborn. Now, unfortunately, due to the condition of Connor's body, the kind of things that we would like to look for simply weren't there. For example, one of the tests that we can do not really a test, one of the procedures that we can do is to take a microscopic section of the umbilical cord stump and look for a thing called vital reaction. The idea being that in a living baby, when the umbilical cord is cut, there's inflammation at the end there. Eventually it scabs and dries and so forth. In this case, because of the postmortem change, that simply wasn't practical. This was simply decomposed tissue. Another possibility would be to look for food in the stomach. So if a baby has been fed after birth, there might be formula or curdled formula in the stomach. Again, that wasn't here. And that's about the extent of it. Unfortunately, there's no other dramatic, simple, or even complicated test to differentiate stillbirth from live birth. So what I was left with was looking at Connor's anatomy and asking myself, is there any anatomical reason that I think he couldn't have lived? I found no such evidence. So just as the case was with Lacey, I ended up concluding that the cause of death was undetermined. My opinion is that when Lacey was deposited in the marina environment, Connor was still within Lacey. And ultimately, because of the effects of an environment, animal feeding and decomposition, Lacey's friend degraded sufficiently to allow access of the uterus to the outside world and ultimately Connor. This determination came by comparing the two autopsies and by comparing the condition of Lacey's uterus to the rest of her body. My thinking was that Connor had likely been protected by that uterus and ultimately with time in the water and with tidal action, the uterus was abraded open. At that time, Connor was released 
and ended up washing ashore very shortly thereafter. I left the cause of death with Connor undetermined, but truly, I believe that whatever, for whatever reason that Lacey met her demise, it was her death that caused Connor's death, since he was still in the uterus. To put it succinctly, the Contra Costa County Medical Examiner's Office had these facts to offer police. One, the manner of death for the adult female could not be determined due to the severe decomposition of the remains, and any indicators of death that could have been surmised from the extremities was null due to the various limbs being missing. Similarly, the missing head and brain could not offer any clues as if the adult female had been shot, suffocated, or strangled. All of that said, though, the adult female had most likely died before the fetus, perhaps even before the body had been placed in the water three to six months prior, a time length that had been estimated by an independent forensic anthropologist. The fetus's death was caused by the mother's death, since he had been in utero at the time of her death, as he was expelled from her uterus through the top of the organ as decomposition settled in, though it was impossible for Dr. Peterson to determine if the baby had been born alive. The fetus's remains gave every indication that he would have survived outside of the womb had he been born alive. And finally, though the cause of death could not be determined, Dr. Peterson, and thus the county, could state unequivocally that the manner of death for the adult female and the male fetus was homicide. On the same day that Lacey's body was discovered and the autopsies began, Sharon and Dennis, Lacey's mother and father, gave DNA samples to the police to test against the remains. The police already had samples of Scott's DNA, which they had used to test against the remains of the baby. By April 17th, the probable cause arrest warrant, made out for two counts of homicide committed by Scott Peterson, had been secured and was ready to go. And on April 18th, that's when shit really hit the fan. With the discovery of what would be identified as Connor's body on April 13th, and the April 14th discovery of what would also later be identified as Lacey's remains, there was roughly four days after that. Four days of waiting, tension mounting, and suspicion swirling even more than it had since that Christmas Eve day nearly five months before. As Detective Grogan testified, it was almost a matter of Occam's razor in determining that the MPD would be looking to secure the arrest warrant once Lacey and Connor's remains had been discovered and identified. He stated that, quote, Obviously, the recovery of the bodies in the same location where Mr. Peterson was during the time period that Lacey disappeared, the fact that the clothing found on Lacey's body didn't match what he had described her wearing, led me to believe that an arrest was appropriate. The different clothing factor is an interesting detail to note. Scott had told police up and down that Lacey had been wearing black pants and, to quote, Detective Grogan, Mr. Peterson had told us that she was wearing black pants when he last saw her, and the clothing from Lacey's body showed she was wearing a light-colored pant. What did it matter, though, in the grand scheme of the investigation if the pants were different? If you will, allow me to share Amy Rocha testimony, Lacey's half-sister. Quote, 
she had a black blouse on with either cream polka dots or cream little flowers. The shoes, they were like, uh, you slipped into them. They had a backing and a little strap over the top. Then she had a black jacket and a cream scarf. And last but not least, Amy testified that on December 23rd, when Lacey and Scott had arrived at her salon for Scott to get a haircut before the next day's Christmas Eve festivities and come in that night, Lacey, quote, had cream-colored pants on. The exact exchange that Amy had on the stand with Rick DeStasto, the lead prosecutor, was this. DeStasto, as you sit here today, is there any doubt in your mind as to what color those pants were? Amy, no doubt. So, yes, the matter of Lacey's pants being different from what Scott had reported them to be, it was important. Though Grogan and the MPD asked the media to give them a bit of a grace period when it came to sharing the news of the body's identifications once they came in so that they could ensure that they had Scott within their grasp to arrest him, that didn't keep the news from reporting the simple fact that an adult female body and an infant male body had washed ashore near the Berkeley area. It was enough to incite an even more furious media frenzy. One that, no doubt, was one that Scott himself was aware of. And Scott had started to unravel, it seemed, in that particular week of April 2003. Hell, even before Connor's body was discovered, he was acting strangely. On April 12th, the day before the first body was discovered, Scott purchased a car for $3,600 in San Diego. Scott had found the car listed on a website called Auto Trader. He called over to the man who had listed it, a man named Michael Griffin, and the two met up so Scott could check out the car, do a test drive, and come to an agreement about whether or not he'd take it. Now, one of the most infamous men in the area, if not the country, rocks up to possibly buy a car from you. A man who has been in the news for months, months at this point. And somehow Michael Griffin didn't recognize him. And it wasn't for lack of his own trying, don't get me wrong. Because by April 12th, Scott had undergone a bit of a physical transformation. According to Michael Griffin, he had no idea that the man he was meeting was Scott Peterson because, quote, his hair was lighter and he had a goatee. Scott's facial hair and this new dye job weren't altogether new by April 12th, though. On April 3rd, Scott met up with his friend, Mike Richardson, and Mike also noticed Scott's new look. Like any friend, he asked him about it. According to him, Scott explained, quote, He said that he was swimming in a friend's pool, and that the chlorine in the pool had changed the color of his hair and his goatee. This pool belonged to their mutual friend Aaron Fitz, Scott claimed who lived in the Bay Area at the time in a complex that had both a pool and a hot tub. And Darren Fritz, when he was eventually called to the stand about this pool and its powerful hair dyeing abilities, he testified that, quote, To my knowledge, Scott has not ever been in the pool or hot tub. Amy Rocha, it should also be noticed, the de facto Rocha family hairstylist, she testified that Scott had never asked her for help or come to her for help in dyeing his hair. 
but let's get back to April 12th. According to Michael Griffin's testimony, the interaction that he had with the man wanting to buy his car was fairly normal, up until the man told him his name. Quote, he gave me the money for the car and said that he would be back and get it in about an hour. Gave me a chance to get my things out of it. When he came back for the car, I had found my paperwork. We filled out the second set of paperwork, which was the original. When I saw the name Jacqueline, I said, are you buying this for your wife or someone? And he said, no, that's my name. Jacqueline Peterson, sure Scott. Griffin shared that obviously a man saying that his name was Jacqueline was something new by him. Quote, I asked him about that. Was that his name or not? Are you buying the car for your wife or someone? And he said, no, that's my name. And I said, French thing, might be Jacques or something like that. He said, no, it's kind of a boy named Sue type thing. That's what my parents hung me with. I go by Jack. I said, do you have a driver's license? And he gave me a driver's license number, said it's a Florida license, expires 10-24-04, to the best of my recollection. A few things to note here. Obviously, for those ingrained in this case or those who have been paying attention to our wide-ranging cast of characters, you'll recognize the name Jacqueline Peterson because that's Scott's mother's name. And pretty wild that not only would he have such a backstory to this, but he would also be able to whip out a nickname so quickly too. So one has to wonder how long Scott had been cooking up this story. The other bizarre thing to note is the Florida license of it all. Because first of all, where the fuck would Scott even be getting a Florida license from? Secondly, why a Florida license? And thirdly, Michael Griffin testified that he never actually saw or held the license himself. Scott merely read off all of the pertinent information for Griffin's records, and presumably to ensure that the title transfer took place. Which, interestingly... It never did. Scott never transferred the car into his own name, or Jacqueline's name for that matter. Instead, on April 12th, he used an alias during the transaction, paid Griffin $3,600 in all cash, reportedly $3,600 bills for the car, which should be noted was about $1,400 short of the original asking price. Then he drove off. Now, between Scott's truck his father car that he had been driving on occasion, and this new Mercedes-Benz that he had just purchased, those on his surveillance team had a time of keeping an eye on him, especially during the week of April 18th. The attorney general at the time, Bill Lockyer, had assigned DOJ agents to tail him, as the investigative team was concerned at that point that Scott would try to make a run for the Mexican border. His phones were being tapped, Law enforcement was eventually able to get a tracker on Scott's new car, and inevitably, Scott realized that he was being watched. And Scott didn't like that. The officers assigned to survey him that week all reported various behaviors of Scott's throughout the week, indicating that he knew he was being followed by police, not the media, as he later tried to claim. He allegedly made a show of going up to the cars that police were stationed in and writing down their license plate numbers. He reportedly got out of his car on more than one occasion when he was being followed and screamed at them, taunting, saying, why don't you go and arrest me? On more than one occasion, Scott would simply flip the bird whenever he saw them. 
It was something that, why don't you go and arrest me? It was something that they took him up on on April 18th, 2003. The same day that DNA confirmed the identities of the bodies that had washed ashore just miles from Berkeley Marina. Officer Ernie Limon was the arresting officer that day, but Detective Grogan was the one who made the call that Scott needed to be placed in police custody before the DNA results were made public, due to the sheer fact that Scott was endangering the lives of the surveillance officers all throughout that day. Grogan testified that the DOJ surveillance team, quote, had lost him at that point twice on that day, and as part of the surveillance that he was picked up after the second time and someone found him. There had already been some driving that was reckless, and I was told that one of the agents nearly got into an accident. I had an arrest warrant for him, and I didn't think that continuing with what we were doing until the DNA results came in was the safest course for anybody involved. Officer Limon shared with the jury the intense and baffling ride that Scott took law enforcement on throughout the early morning hours prior to his arrest. Quote, I started going, let's see, southbound on El Camino Real. I made a U-turn, actually, because I was going northbound. Made a U-turn, verified that it was the vehicle because it had passed me so quickly. The only thing that got my attention was real quickly at going by the color of the vehicle. So I first approached it to verify that Mr. Peterson was in the vehicle and it was the same license plate. I did do that. As I was approaching him at a higher rate of speed, he pulled over from the number one lane, which would be the left lane of the two lanes, and pulled over all the way to the right lane and almost came to a complete stop. He then proceeded to continue southbound on El Camino Real. He eventually went west on Carmel Valley Road and then eventually hit Torrey Pines Road, where he went southbound. The location was around North Torrey Pines Road in the street called Callan, Callan Street in the Torrey Pines Golf Course. It's a road leading to the golf course, and I would say it's approximately 200 yards away from the golf course. Once Limon and Scott arrived at that location, the call was made. It was time to make the arrest. In his unmarked car, Limon turned on the police lights, and Scott pulled over. Grogan, along with Detectives Burkini, Bueller, and Carter, they were a quarter of a mile away, and they immediately reported to the scene when Limon communicated that he had Scott pulled over. When they arrived, it was Grogan who approached Scott. And according to his testimony, at around 11.10 a.m. on April 18th, 2003, hours before the world would find out conclusively that his wife and son had in fact been the bodies to wash ashore days earlier, Detective Grogan told Scott Peterson, quote, that he was under arrest for murder. The weirdness of Scott's arrest was only just getting started, though. With Scott in police custody, law enforcement took a peek inside his car, and they found a lot. The following items were in Scott's Mercedes-Benz when he was arrested. Four cell phones a driver's license belonging to Scott's brother, John, on the center console, and his own driver's license in his wallet. A number of different articles of clothing, a large amount of camping gear, including a backpack that had a large length of climbing rope attached to the side of it, outdoorsy types of shoes, a camp axe, a series of folding knives, a folding saw, a hammock, a water purifier, a camp stove, a filleting knife, a fishing rod and reel, and nearly 
$15,000 in cash in $100 bills. He also had a picture of Lacey and him and a February 16th letter from Amber because Scott Peterson apparently contains multitudes. Scott, of course, had all sorts of explanations for his behavior, his appearance, and all of the bizarre shit in his car. He claimed that he had used his brother's license the day before to get a San Diego resident discount at the Torrey Pines golf course, and that he'd been living out of his car because of the media attention, which is why he had all of that shit in his car. To that, we say once again, sure, Scott. Though he was arrested at just after 11 a.m., Scott wasn't booked in the Stanislaus County Jail until 12.09 a.m. that night. Three days later, on April 21st, he faced his arraignment. In legalese, the criminal complaint charged Scott with, quote, committing one count of felony murder that he did willfully, unlawfully, and feloniously, and with malice aforethought, murder Lacey Denise Peterson, and that he did intentionally, deliberately, and with premeditation. During the commission of the murder of Lacey and with the knowledge that Lacey was pregnant, Scott did inflict injury on Lacey, resulting in the termination of her pregnancy. Scott was charged with a second count of felony murder in that he, quote, did willfully, unlawfully, and feloniously, and with malice aforethought murder, baby Connor Peterson, a fetus, and that he did act intentionally, deliberately, and with premeditation. Scott, as expected, pled not guilty, and the bail hearing was scheduled for May 6th. Now, the legal proceedings for Scott's trial were, again in a word, a lot. For one, Scott had Mark Garagos as his lawyer. He of that specific rank of celebrity lawyer. Garagos has had a number of famous clients over the years, including Winona Ryder, Michael Jackson, Gary Condit, just to name a few. From the jump, Scott's trial was always going to be a media circus, and Garagos knew that. On February 26, 2004, he tried to argue for two juries who would be sequestered throughout the trial, but the presiding judge, Judge Alfred DeLucci, shot him down on both arguments despite, quote, agreeing in substance with Garagos. DeLucci ruled instead to only have one non-sequestered jury because he stated, quote, many potential jurors will decline serving because they don't want to be locked up for five months. DeLucci also believed, quote, some jurors might resent being sequestered and might blame Scott, which would not be in his best interest. Thus, on March 22, 2004, the jury selection began for one of the most divisive cases to hit the national stage. Jury selection started with 1,000 people who had been summoned for their jury duty, and through the questionnaire process, that number was whittled down to 317 prospective jurors. Those 317 individuals then went through the Hovoy voir dire process. Hove voir dire is actually different from the standard questionnaire in that voir dire is the process used by the defense and prosecution teams to select a fair and impartial jury. During voir dire, the jury panel is questioned by both parties' lawyers. The questions are intended to help the lawyers in the jury selection process. In Scott's case, voir dire was implemented to eliminate any of the prospective jurors who have a conscientious or religious objection to capital punishment. A prospective juror would first be questioned by Judge DeLucci about capital punishment since 
the charges were of a capital nature. And then the defense and prosecution would ask follow-up questions. It took until May 27th for the jury to be selected. It was split evenly. Six men and six women for a total of 12 with six alternates. The Palo Alto Daily News at the time wrote up descriptions on each juror, so let's meet our jury, shall we? Juror number one, quote, a 40-something white man who works as a head coach at a local school. He has coached 500 youths, including the son of a sheriff. He said everyone deserves a fair deal in the trial. He said he would expect people accused of a crime to defend themselves, but after the judge explained the burden of proof was on the prosecution, he would work to put that out of his mind, saying, I have to constantly remind myself. Juror number two, a white man in his 50s who consulted his parish priest before deciding he could vote for the death penalty under some circumstances. He works mostly outdoors, but did not reveal his job. He's a member of the Native Sons of the Golden West, but said that meant only that he was born in California. He said that although he had previously opined that Peterson was guilty, he could put that aside. Juror number three, a 30-something female Hispanic County social worker with two sisters who also work for government agencies. She is studying at night to get her master's degree. Asked if she could be fair, she said, I tend to really want to do what's in the best interest of the people I serve. Juror number four, a former Coloma police officer, a middle-aged man who now works as a project manager. The man said that he was once arrested for assault and battery of a police officer during a union demonstration. Juror number five, a husky white man in his late 20s or 30s with a crew cut. He's on disability from his job as an airport screener for a private firm and formerly worked as a store security agent. He apparently raises a child as a single parent. He said he has followed the case very little and smiled and shook his head when defense lawyer Mark Garagos asked if Peterson's affair would make him think he's guilty of murder. Juror number six, a young white Half Moon Bay firefighter paramedic who agrees with his captain that there is not enough information to say whether Scott Peterson is guilty. He doesn't watch much TV, spending as much as five hours a day on his bicycle when he's not on duty. He knows many police officers through his job, but said that won't make him favor the prosecution. I know a lot of people with badges I'm ashamed to be associated with, he said. Juror number seven, a retired PG&E employee, an Asian woman in her 50s or 60s. She seemed very responsive to Garagos and said that she could believe Peterson was falsely accused. I don't see a motive for something that heinous, she said, but acknowledged prosecutors could be keeping the case close to the vest. Juror number eight, a teamster in his late 40s or 50s who works the graveyard shift and didn't follow the case. He was once accused of violating a restraining order during his divorce. He somewhat agrees that police are too quick to arrest in high-profile cases, and he says that he strongly believes in the concept of innocent until proven guilty. Juror number nine, a white woman in her late 30s or 40s whose fiancé was convicted of murdering a stranger in the early 1980s and was later killed in prison. She apparently married him after his trial. She said that that would not affect her views on the Peterson case. She works in packaging for a biotech company and has been married to her second husband since 1990. Juror number 10. A white 40-ish woman who suffered a series of personal tragedies so severe that she was questioned about it in the judge's chambers. She spends much of her time with her husband and children. 
She said that because so much has happened to her, she has learned to tell the truth and honestly feels that she can be fair. Asked about stealth jurors, she drew a laugh when she said, I think they should get a life. Juror 11. A black woman in her 40s who works as a chief accountant. She had a close relative who was a deputy sheriff, but said it would not affect her. She expressed caution about accepting all kinds of evidence, repeatedly saying it depends on the circumstances. Juror number 12. A white 30-something adoption worker who belongs to the Executive Women's Golf Association. She once worked on child abuse cases and found some police officers difficult to work with because they would rather go to a 10-car pileup, but said that won't influence her attitude toward the prosecution. With the jury selected, the stage was set at the San Mateo County Courthouse, 90 minutes away from Modesto. The state versus Scott Peterson began on June 1st, 2004. Scott's defense team was led by Mark Garagos, and Garagos's main defense was that there was no physical evidence tying Scott to Lacey's death. They claimed that the entire case was circumstantial, and Scott was simply a scapegoat. Garagos's main points from his opening statement proclaiming Scott's innocence were these. 1. Lacey knew about the boat. This is all coming from the opening statement, so don't be confused by the present tense being used here. A witness will testify that Lacey was at the warehouse on December 20th and saw the boat. A woman will testify that she talked to Lacey that same day when Lacey used the bathroom next door because of the fertilizer products blocking the bathroom at the warehouse. Two, Martha Stewart did talk about meringue on the 24th. Garagos played the segment with noticeable reaction from the spectators. Three, the khaki pants Lacey was found in are not the same pants that Lacey wore on the 23rd to Amy's salon. When law enforcement attained a pair of the same pants, they showed them to Amy, who said that they were not the same. The pants Lacey had on did not have a drawstring. The pocket style was different and other style features were different. Amy will provide testimony. Four, Scott told Amber that he loved Lacey and very much wanted her back alive. Diffusing Amber as a motive, Garagos provided some statements that Scott made in a conversation with Amber that was taped on January 6th, when Scott did not know that he was being taped. He repeatedly expressed his love for Lacey and his desire to have her safely return. Garagos pointed out a few other discrepancies, instances that he claimed didn't jive with the suggestion that Scott had been planning Lacey's murder, such as, Scott asking his sister-in-law to come over for pizza the night detectives thought he killed her. He paid her health insurance premium that the day she vanished. A neighbor whose bedroom is about 15 feet from the Peterson's Covina Avenue home claimed that they heard nothing unusual that night. Testimony indicated that Scott was attempting to spend more time with Lacey's parents because they would soon have a new grandchild. Garagos' biggest boon in his arguments was the fact that they're really was no physical proof even suggesting Lacey had been murdered in the house. The physical evidence tying Scott to the crime was essentially non-existent. It was a good place for the defense lawyer to be, for sure. But the prosecution, led by Rick DeStasso, had a few addendums to those points. And by a few, I again mean a lot. DeStasso opened 
with his first statement by describing in great detail the night of December 24th, beginning with Sharon, Lacey's mom, having her preparations for a Christmas Eve family dinner interrupted by a phone call from Scott asking if Lacey was there. The main points of DeSasso's opening statement were these. Police became suspicious of Scott on the 24th because Scott's alibi was a fishing trip to the Berkeley Marina, a 90-mile trip from Modesto when there were dozens of other places to fish much closer. Scott couldn't say what he was fishing for or what bait and lures that he used. He told at least two people that he went golfing. He washed his clothes when he returned home, and there was evidence of a cleanup. Dirty rags in the washer and a mop bucket and mops outside the door. The rug by a side door was scrunched up, and there was no evidence of a break-in or burglary. Police conducted an exhaustive search for Lacey, showing that no other explanation could be given for her disappearance. DeSasso also shared that several witnesses will further discredit Scott's fishing alibi. Several witnesses and cell phone records will discredit Scott's timeline for the morning of the 24th, when he said that he left the house at 9.30 that morning, and provide a narrow 10-minute time frame between 10.08 and 10.18, when something else could have accounted for Lacey's disappearance. Several witnesses will discredit Scott's claim that Lacey planned to go for a walk the morning of the 24th, and that Lacey was watching a Martha Stewart show that talked about meringue. Scott described Lacey as wearing black pants, and Lacey was found in tan pants, the same pants that she was wearing December 23rd. Witnesses will show that Scott lied about being married and that his affair with Amber coincided with his secret purchase of a boat and researching the tides and currents in the San Francisco Bay. Pictures of Scott and Amber at a Christmas party were contrasted with a picture of Lacey sitting alone at a different Christmas party the same night. The evidence will show that Scott made five anchors from a cement bag, but Scott said that he only made one. The scent dogs picked up Lacey's scent on the pier where Scott launched his boat on the 24th. A pair of pliers with two strands of hair that might have been Lacey's were found in Scott's boat. Scott returned to the marina during the searches, but he didn't identify himself or talk to anyone. Scott lied to his family and friends about where he was on January 11, 2003. Scott sold the Land Rover and attempted to sell the house. Scott converted Connor's nursery into a storage room. A hydrologist will explain where Lacey's body had to go into the water for her and Connor to be found at their respective recovery sites, and that is where Scott said he was fishing. Expert witnesses will also testify that Lacey was in the bay for a period of between three to six months and explain how the disarticulation occurred. And witnesses will testify that Scott was a flight risk when he was arrested on April 18th near the Mexican border and they will also detail the contents of the car. Now, word of the day, that all is a lot. So we're not going to go into all of the intimate details of the entire trial, because otherwise this series would be like 18 parts, especially when you consider that the prosecution took four months to present the entire case that they had. The state began their case on June 1st, and it wasn't until October 5th that they rested. Scott's defense team presented their case on October 18th, and on October 26th, they arrested. Four months compared to basically a week admittedly seems bizarre on the front, but it has to be remembered that the burden of proof was on the state, the prosecution, to convince the jury. The prosecution clearly took their time to fully lay out their case against Scott, 
and Rick DeStasso tied it all together at the end with his closing argument. Quote, it's simple. It's a simple case where a man murdered his wife. I can't tell you he did it at night. I can't tell you he did it in the morning. I don't have to prove that to you. I only have to prove that he did it. The only person that we know without any doubt who was there in the exact location where Lacey and Cotter Peterson's bodies washed ashore at that exact time when they went missing is sitting right there. That alone is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You can take that fact to the bank and you can convict this man of murder. I was once with a woman who thought was my soulmate, but I lost her. Lacey Peterson was dead to Scott Peterson a long time before he killed her. This is the life that Scott Peterson wanted. Not necessarily to be with Amber Fry, although he was completely obsessed with her. The reason he killed Lacey Peterson was that Connor Peterson was on the way. Things were going to change. No more of this running around, living this double life thing. He wants to live the rich, successful, free-reeling bachelor life. He can't do that when he's paying child support, alimony, and everything else. He didn't want to be tied to this kid for the rest of his life. He didn't want to be tied to Lacey for the rest of his life. So he killed her. There's no big secret there. I don't care how upset you are. Nobody forgets that you just got home from fishing at the Berkeley Marina. Peterson had planned to dump Lacey's body, get back to Modesto, and go to the golf club, but the disposal took longer than planned. And that was it. He just screwed it up. Screwed up his alibi. He's a very manipulative guy, Scott Peterson. He knows exactly what he's doing at all times. The two lives are catching on up on Scott Peterson. He got those porn channels because he knew she's not coming home and he's moving on with his life. He created a fantasy life in his head and he made it his reality. I'm not telling you that he killed his wife to go marry Amber Fry. Amber Fry represented his freedom. Freedom is what he wanted. I also really loved the final bit of DeStasso's closing argument, though. Quote, let's take a jigsaw puzzle of the Golden Gate Bridge. This is one I like. Take a blue piece. Well, the blue piece could be water, could be sky, could be a car driving across the bridge, right? It doesn't mean that we take the blue piece because it can be these other things and throw it away. Of course not. You put it in the puzzle where it needs to go. Take an orange piece. Could be a sunset. Could be a piece of the bridge. Does that mean we just take it and throw it away? We look at each one in order. If we throw everything away, that's not the way we do it. Of course not. We take the piece, you see where it fits with the other pieces. You know what, pretty soon you put those pieces together and, you know, you got a bridge. Even if some of the pieces you don't think, you personally don't think fit, you are still going to see what the puzzle is made of. That's exactly what we have here. Each piece that I have talked to you about fits only in one direction. And that's that this man is guilty of murder. Circumstantial evidence, you know, look at these things like this. Is it a coincidence that the bodies were in the exact same area where the defendant went fishing? Is it a coincidence that the defendant was lying about being in Paris and in Europe? Is it a coincidence that he wanted to sell Lacey's house, her furniture, her car? Is it a coincidence he lied about the affair? 
How many of these coincidences does the defense want you to swallow and have you still call yourselves reasonable people? If the explanation for all of these facts taken together is not reasonable, as defense is trying to present, you must reject it. We love a lawyer who asks hashtag fucking questions. Garagos, though, he didn't. In his closing arguments, he had this to say, quote, The theory that Scott didn't want to be saddled with child support doesn't make sense because Lacey Peterson stood to inherit $1 million from her grandmother, perhaps wiping out her husband's obligation if they divorced. He let police search his home and warehouse, provided blood and hair samples, and retrieved receipts proving where he was the day in question. The uncontroverted testimony is that this guy searched more than any human for his family. The only thing they're banking on is you'll hate him. And if you hate him, you will suspend rationality. Detectives Tunnel Vision kept them from investigating reported sightings of Lacey Peterson for several months. Yet on January 2nd, 2003, they used media to appeal for help from anyone who might have seen Scott Peterson's pickup or boat. If Scott Peterson was the person who was responsible for Lacey's death, wouldn't he know what she was wearing when he killed her? Why would he tell them a white shirt and black pants? What sense would that make? Then he hides the tennis shoes, and while she's dead, he watches Martha Stewart? They didn't find, you know, chicken wire, the anchors. Remember, we had the poisoning theory. We had the smothering theory, the strangling theory. We've got the gun theory. We've got the knife theory. We just keep changing theories, and we never change suspects. That's the problem with this case. That's why I believe that a juror who has taken an oath in this case has a duty to find Mr. Peterson not guilty. The hallmark of our system of justice, the hallmark of the American jurisprudence system, is that if the prosecution does not prove their case, that you must acquit Mr. Peterson. And they, the prosecution, have the burden of proof. If they don't prove their case, you do not just fill in the blanks for them. You do not engage in speculation or conjecture. You just don't go back there and say, well, I've got a strong suspicion about it, and even though they didn't prove this, and even though this kind of fell apart, I'm just going to find him guilty anyway. That's not our system. It's the system in other areas of the on the planet, but it's not here in America. And I would just ask you to, and to adhere to that oath, and ask you to return with a verdict of not guilty. And with that, the jury began their deliberations on November 3rd, 2004. Six days in, juror number seven was replaced due to allegations that she had been conducting research on the case, which is expressly forbidden behavior. The next day on November 10th, juror number five was also replaced after appealing to Judge DeLucci to remove him. Juror number five, interesting sidebar, he was replaced by an alternate whose son-in-law owned the shack, the very restaurant that Scott and Lacey had opened several years before. Each time a juror was dismissed, the jury had to start their deliberations over again entirely, as if their previous conversations hadn't happened. And two days after the last juror switch, word came. They had a verdict. At 1 p.m. on November 12th, 2004, after months of arguments and evidence, of allegations and anecdotes, the verdict was read out. 
Scott Peterson was found guilty on charges of murder in the first degree against Lacey and murder in the second degree against his son, Connor. And yes, the jury agreed that the crime fit the description of special circumstances. So the death penalty was being sought. Due to the special circumstances application, the penalty phase of the case began on November 30th, where the defense and the prosecution presented witnesses who were in the camp of vying for either life in prison or the lethal injection. Despite the defense calling on 39 individuals in Scott's favor, compared to the prosecution's four witnesses, which were Brent Rocha, Amy Rocha, Ron Gransky, and Sharon Rocha, it seems Garagos doth protested too much with such a large number of Scott supporters on the stand. Because on December 13th, the jury returned their second verdict in the case of the people of the state of California versus Scott Peterson. Quote, We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, fixed the penalty at death. This story about Lacey and Connor and Scott Peterson, it's a story that should have ended back in 2005, when Scott was transferred to San Quentin Prison, his spot on death row holding him there ever since. But neat and tidy, easily swallowed answers and tales, that's not necessarily how we do things here at DAW. Because, of course, this is the story of the murder of Lacey Peterson one of the most controversial cases in our country's recent memory. And there's a lot of theories to consider when asking the question of, who did kill Lacey Peterson? I have to come clean. I've been holding back on you, dear listeners. Holding back on a few details that we haven't yet discussed. Details that morph into pauses, that morph into questions, that morph into theories. There's the detail of the multiple reported sightings of Lacey throughout the morning of Christmas Eve 2002, after Scott left the house. There's the detail of the burglary that took place across the street from the 523 Covina Avenue house where Lacey and Scott lived. There's the detail that posits the possibility that Amber actually knew about Lacey, knew and lied about knowing of her romantic rival. There's the detail of that local satanic cult. I've always said it's the details that'll trip you up. Trip you up and force you to rethink everything you know. Let's start with the reported sightings. By the end of the first week of Lacey's disappearance, a number of people who had been in the neighborhood on December 24th had reported seeing Lacey on that Christmas Eve morning. Four of those alleged sightings have been considered more credible than others. These people were sure that they saw Lacey and Mackenzie in the same area on the morning of December 24th around 10 a.m. And they were Homer Maldonado, Tony Freitas, Martha Aguilar, and Jean Pedrioli. Homer Maldonado and his wife had stopped by gas at the USA station on the corner of Miller Avenue and Camilla Way between 9.45 and 10 a.m. on December 24th. After leaving the gas station, they drove west on Miller. At the corner of Covina and Miller, Maldonado saw Lacey and McKenzie in front of the second house from the corner on the west side of the street to 11 Covina. 
He described her as very pregnant and having trouble controlling the dog. Maldonado reported this to the MPDD tip line on January 1st, 2003. When he was not contacted by the Modesto police, he went to the command post at the park where he reported the sighting and he spoke to the chaplain there. However, he was never interviewed by the Modesto police. In July 2004, during the trial, that was the first time that he was interviewed, and it was by an investigator from the DA's office. Around 10 a.m. on the morning of December 24th, Tony Freitas was driving his regular delivery route northwest on La Loma Avenue when he saw Lacey and Mackenzie near the intersection where there's a small, grassy, triangular park. Freitas reported this to the MPD tip line on December 30th, 2002. The woman who took his call said that he would be contacted by a detective. Freitas was never contacted by anyone from the Modesto Police Department. And again, in July 2004, during the trial, he was interviewed by a DA investigator. Around 10 a.m. on the morning of December 24th, Martha Aguilar saw Lacey McKenzie walking on the Loma Avenue in the same general area that Freitas claimed that he saw her. She was sure it was Lacey. Aguilar lived two blocks south of Lacey on Covina, and they went to the same doctor. Aguilar's call to the MPD tip line was never returned. She was actually never interviewed by anyone from MPD or from the DA's office. Jean Pedrioli saw Lacey and Mackenzie around 10 a.m. on the morning of December 24th, around the time he picked up a prescription at a pharmacy. He saw them on La Loma Avenue in the same area that they had been seen by Aguilar and Freitas. He noticed Mackenzie because he was a dog. He has a dog the same color. He said that the woman and the dog had to walk around some branches that were on the sidewalk. Pedrioli made two calls to the MPD tip line. He was told that he would never have that he would have to prove his whereabouts, but he thought that the police were not interested in his tip. He was never contacted by them or by the DA's office. MPD and Detective Grogan, they maintained that they dismissed the majority of the sightings due to the 1018 timestamp that they were holding on to, as that was the time that Karen Service determined that she discovered Mackenzie wandering around by himself. Some of the sightings were chalked up to as having been real, except it was a different pregnant woman that all of these people had seen. Kristen Dempiewolf, who was 33 at the time, had shoulder-length brown hair and a mid-sized brownish dog, and she may have been walking her dog that morning, and she may have been the pregnant woman that the witnesses thought they saw. Police investigators conducted a, quote, cognitive interview where hypnosis techniques were used on Kristen because she couldn't remember for sure if she even had walked her dog that day. The hypnosis was intended to help her remember, quote, exactly when and where she walked her dog on Christmas Eve. The police were satisfied that these eyewitnesses saw either Kristen or another pregnant woman on Christmas Eve morning, not Lacey. But you still have to ask, why didn't they investigate the claims more thoroughly? Why so readily dismiss them? Especially given the other activities going on in the neighborhood that morning. At around 9.45 that morning, a Stanislaus County Hospital employee, Diana Campos, was taking a smoke break. 
Now, the hospital is located close enough to the park that it can give you a direct sight of line into the park. In her first phone call to the police, Campos said that she took the break at 10.45 a.m. However, during the preliminary hearing, Garagos said that Campos said that the time was 9.45 a.m. after she checked her records. Campos saw three people walking together along the jogging trail in a direction away from the Covina home. One was an obviously pregnant white woman with a dog on a leash, and she identified the dog as a medium-sized golden retriever. The dog was barking constantly, and the woman had to pull up the dog with the leash. The other two people were men. One, wearing a beanie cap, told the woman, shut the fucking dog up. Campos watched them for about five minutes, but she didn't think too much of it until she saw the flyer on the 26th, and she recognized Lacey as the woman that she saw. She described the woman as having short, dark, straight, shoulder-length hair, and she was about six to seven months pregnant. She was wearing a white top and what appeared to be stretch pants, but she didn't know what color. One of the men was in his late 30s, 5'7", medium build, wearing a dark beanie, dirty dark shirt, and dirty blue jeans. The second man was also late 30s, 5'7", medium build, short brown hair, wearing a Levi jacket with a tear and blue jeans. And half an hour later, at 10.15, there were allegedly screams heard in the park. A police officer who had been interviewing people along the park's Mensinger Trail and elsewhere around the park, he reported that he spoke with a woman who said that she heard screams about 10.15 a.m. on Christmas Eve. All of these reports, however, just weren't regarded too carefully by police. But do they speak to an almost simple truth? Was Lacey seen alive after Scott left that morning? And more specifically, did those men that Diana Campos saw accosting and following a pregnant woman, did they have something to do with Lacey's murder instead? These men segue into another popular alternative theory, that Lacey was involved in stopping a burglary happening across the street from her own house. The Medina family were neighbors of Lacey and Scott, and on Christmas Eve morning, they left to spend the holidays out of town. A cell phone call that Susan Medina placed at 10.33 timestamped the moment when they left their house that day. As reports later stated, quote, the Medinas returned on the 26th only to find that their home had been burglarized. Their dolly was in the front yard, which they believe was used to remove the safe from the house. The leaf blower was on the cement pad in the backyard, and their French doors were wide open. A leather glove, around a hammer, was on the bed in the master bedroom. Both the glove and the hammer were stolen from the shed. A boot print on the white paint on the side door. That's how they knew it was forced entry. The children's room was ransacked, but the master bedroom was only slightly so. Valuable jewelry left out in the open was not taken. A lot of other valuables in the house were not touched, such as TVs, VCRs, and a vase containing $800 cash. The keys to the Mercedes parked in the drive were hanging in the kitchen, but the car was undisturbed. The Medinas had no idea what had happened in their sleepy little neighborhood when they arrived back, only realizing that something had happened when they saw their street flooded with police. And after realizing what had happened to their own house... 
Susan Medina reported the burglary to all of the police who were stationed in front of her house, who were there to help execute the search warrant on 523 Covina. Now, burglary isn't going to get much attention in the neighborhood when one of the other neighbors has mysteriously gone missing. However, one neighbor did report to police seeing something strange at the Medina house on the morning of the 24th. Diane Jackson claims that she witnessed a van and three dark-skinned men, not African-American, in front of the Medina house on December 24th at 11.40 a.m. These three dark-skinned men, though, weren't the ones that MPD arrested in connection to the burglary on January 2nd. Police arrested two white men, Stephen Wayne Todd and Donald Glenn Pierce, on the 2nd in connection with the burglary of the Medina home. Todd led police to some of the stolen property, including a safe, jewelry, and a weed eater, according to a police report. Police then said that neither of the men was connected to Lacey's disappearance. So my question, though, is this. If these two were the burglars, then who were the three men that Diane Jackson saw? Had Lacey confronted the three men for some reason? Had she confronted the two alleged burglars? Had somebody taken advantage of her? And had they silenced her for what she'd seen? There are other smaller, more niche theories that have abounded over the years as well. Some say there's evidence to suggest that Amber actually knew the truth about Scott, that he was married and his wife was very much alive. They believe that this gave her motive to kill, inspired by her desire to have the life with Scott that she was already dreaming of. Others believe a local satanic cult murdered Lacey, and no, I'm not kidding. Modesto Furniture Store owner Bill Austin told ABC News that police investigating the disappearance contacted him about a satanic connection. Quote, Early in the investigation, one of the detectives called me on the phone. He said that he had received a phone tip about a cult that was operating out of my building. Austin said that he told the detective that he knew nothing about cults and he doesn't believe one was operating out of his building. He said that he had never heard anything more about the cult from police after that initial phone call. Scott's lawyer went another step further with the cult theory in an interview with People magazine and, quote, suggested a link between Lacey's December 24, 2002 disappearance and the unsolved case of another pregnant woman, Evelyn Hernandez, who went missing on May 1st, 2002, and also later washed up in the San Francisco Bay. Garrigo said that both dates mark holy days on the satanic calendar. Still others have suggested that a serial killer was running loose in the area, fulfilling his MO of murdering pregnant women. Burglary turned murder. An instance of wrong place, wrong time assault. Murderous mistress. Satanic cult sacrifices. A serial killer with a vengeance against expectant mothers. It all makes for intriguing, though maybe not compelling, discussion when it comes to a case that's still missing so many crucial pieces of information. Or is it as easy as that old adage, that tenant of Occam's razor? Did the husband simply do it. I think that's as good a place as any to kick off our final series of hashtag questions about the murder of Lacey Peterson. 
Hashtag question number one. How did Lacey come to be placed in the bay? How did someone dispose of the body of a pregnant woman without being detected? How long, how was Lacey's body detected in the bay for so long? Had she been weighed down by anchors that had been tied to her? Are those possible anchors to blame for her missing limbs? If Lacey was weighed down by anchors, how have they never been found? Were the anchors made by Scott? Did Scott really only make one anchor, or did he make five, like the evidence seems to suggest? If he made five, what did he do with them, and what happened to those anchors? Were Lacey's extremities caught and torn off by the flotsam and jetsam found in marine environments? Did someone methodically and carefully remove Lacey's forearms, left leg, and head? Or is this instance a combination of factors? Did someone perhaps purposely remove Lacey's head and forearms to delay identification? And did her legs simply get torn off while in the water by some structure or by an animal? If someone did remove Lacey's extremities, how did they do so without leaving any tool marks? Is that something only a skilled outdoorsman, fisher, or hunter could do? How did Lacey come to have fractured ribs? Were her ribs fractured before she died or after she died? What are the fractured ribs an indicator of? Had Lacey fought for her life and for Connor's? When exactly was Lacey placed in the water? And where exactly was Lacey placed in the water? Was Lacey already dead when she was placed in the bay or did she perhaps drown? When was Connor expelled from the uterus through the fundus opening? Was Connor born alive and drowned or did he die in utero and was later simply expelled when Lacey's front was abraded? Had Lacey really been at the warehouse on December 20th? Is that why the scent tracking dogs hit on her there at the pier? Or was it because her body had been brought there before being disposed? Did Lacey know about Scott's boat? Were the strands of hair found in the pliers of the warehouse Lacey's? Were they used as a weapon against her? Was Lacey ever wearing black pants on December 24th? If so, then why was she wearing beige pants when her body was discovered? What is the significance, the true significance of the black pants versus beige pants if it's all a lie? Why would Scott lie about the color of her pants? Were the beige pants that were found on Lacey's body the same pants that she had been wearing on December 23rd when she was at Amy's salon? Is this an indicator that Lacey was killed on December 23rd? Was Scott trying to change his appearance to avoid the media or because he was getting ready to flee the country and didn't want to be recognized? Why did he lie and say that the chlorine in a friend's pool dyed his hair? Why did he buy the Mercedes-Benz? Why did he lie about his name when he bought the car? How long had he been working on the backstory of his Jacqueline Peterson, a boy named Sue, fake name? Why did he say that he had a Florida license? Was Scott's family helping him get together the things that he would need in order to leave the country? Did Scott's parents know more than they told police about what happened to Lacey? 
why did Scott have so many survival necessities, like the portable stove, the water purifier, fucking 15K in cash, and other camping gear in his car when he was arrested? Was Scott actually planning to make a run for the border? Why was Scott so uncooperative with investigators almost from the start? Was Scott purposely trying to impede the investigation, or was he just suffering from straight white man indignation? Did Amber know about Lacey? Did Lacey know about Amber? Did Lacey know about any of Scott's affairs? Is it true that Scott told another former mistress from early in his marriage, as reported by CNN, that he had no intention of having children, quote, because they would get in the way of his lifestyle? What are the odds that Scott would claim to Amber that his wife had died? And then she did end up dying. Did the two men who were charged with burglarizing the Medina house have anything to do with Lacey's death? Who were the three men seen by Diane Jackson? Did they have anything to do with Lacey's death? Was the woman heard screaming in the park actually Lacey? Were any of the reported sightings made on December 24th of Lacey actually her? If they were, what times did they actually take place? And how does that relate to Scott's own timeline? Did the police too quickly brush off the sightings because it didn't fit their timeline? Or it didn't fit their theory? Was Lacey alive when Scott left their house on December 24th? Did Lacey ever see December 24th? Or was she killed the night before? How exactly did Lacey die? When exactly did Lacey die? And where exactly did Lacey die? Who killed Lacey? Why was Lacey Peterson killed? Is Scott Peterson as guilty as he's been found? Or is he actually innocent? As we all know now, Scott Peterson has been sitting on death row in San Quentin since he was found guilty of Lacey and Connor's murders back in 2004. That death sentence, though, has since been overturned. On August 24th of this past summer, in a 7-0 decision, the Supreme Court of California overturned the sentence, but they still upheld his conviction. The decision came due to what was seen as bench misconduct by the since-dearly-departed Judge DeLucci for dismissing jurors who opposed capital punishment without asking them whether they could put their views aside. Various other accusations of the media pressure, other juror misconduct, and even misconduct by the state have been brought forth. Since then, prosecutors have said that they will retry Scott for the penalty phase of his conviction. And they're seeking the death penalty once again. Scott will actually be appearing in court later this month, on December, on January 21st, for that retrial. The case of Scott Peterson is often entangled in commentary that he was never going to get a fair trial because of the publicity. That the misconduct throughout the trial was so rampant, the entire conviction should be thrown out. And that the circumstantial evidence was all that the state had on him, since the only piece of physical evidence or the strands of hair found on the pliers. But the case of Scott Peterson is also, in my opinion, at its heart, a commentary on odds and chance. What are the odds 
Lacey's body was found wearing the pants that she'd been wearing the night before she went missing, as witnessed by her half-sister. What are the odds that Lacey went missing right after Scott told his mistress that it was going to be his first holiday season without her? What are the odds that Lacey and Connor were found in the same area where Scott claimed that he'd been fishing on the day of her disappearance? And what are the odds that his wife does die after he claimed she was already dead? One of the most indisputable facts of the entire case is this. Scott Peterson is a liar. And it's the details of the webs that he wove and the lies that he told that tripped him up then. And I have faith that they're going to trip him up again this time too. Connor Peterson should be turning 18 next month. Lacey Peterson should still be gardening to her heart's content. Their lives should not have been taken from them by a man who wanted to protect his selfish fantasy life of lies. Their lives were worth more than his lies. And they still are. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's also all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com or head over to darkashellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>